Welcome to another episode of Nipe's Story. This is a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and across the African continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mwachiro. And I'm hoping that you and yours are safe and well. On today's episode, we feature Olufemi Terry with his story, Digitalis Lust. He looks forward to the second Wednesday of every month with the same impatience, regardless of his libido. On those afternoons, which his colleagues at the lab believe have been set aside for squash, as his Mondays are, he leaves the office at half past four to drive into town, glad to go against the city traffic. He turns the car away from the ocean road and drives up the mountain. Here, the streets are close, cobbled in places and uneven. In the sunlight of early summer, he sees no one walking. The building he's going to is shouldered on one side by a bed and breakfast, and on the other, a townhouse. He's in the habit of parking directly outside or at the opposite curb, but today he finds it necessary to go as far as the next intersection to find a space. He presses the top buzzer. The door gate groans to signal it's unlocked, and he lets himself in. On the second floor landing hang etchings of stylized hunters with bent bows, meant, he assumes, to connote primitive art. With a short knock at the last door, he enters without awaiting a response. A woman with cocoa-brown skin is unhurriedly placing a magazine beneath the bed. In the same motion, she gets to her feet. Mr. Raymond. The greeting carries a note of pleased startlement. His lips pull into a blank, almost smile, a look of discretion that's part of his ritual for these assignations. The flowers in the tall, thin vase strike him as a peculiar choice. He associates roses with romance. He sets down his case next to the wall before she can take it, but allows her to assist him in removing his jacket. The small room with its high square bed, is cosy rather than cramped and carries a lilyish scent. He sits on the bed to unlace his shoes. From behind him comes the stir and clink of her preparations. Atonal music, faintly Asian, plays. In nothing but grey undershorts, he lies facing the pillow. The floor squeaks beneath her step and a cover as light as lace drops over his prickling skin, draping his body. Warm, greased palms clasp his shoulders, a readying touch. She begins to work oil into the muscles around his shoulder blades, which are, he thinks with pride, knotty from years of swimming. Once or twice before, she told him he was tense, but today she moves without pause or comment and presses into his lower back. He dozes off. In the flexing of small, strong hands over his torso, he detects a rhythm that keeps in time with the music. Against her first touch, near the buttocks, he clenches a little. She crosses to the other side of the bed and folds back the sheet, exposing calves, hamstrings. He wipes drool from the corner of his mouth, conscious of his erection. He's on his back now. He watches her movements through half-closed lashes, a pretense which, deceiving no one, is a form of intimacy between them in this room. 
She gives no sign she's noticed his excitement, not so much as a glance at the bulge of his shorts. Setting down the bottle of oil, she tugs at his waistband. He's grateful for the unspoken arrangement they have fixed. He need never demand of her the more purposeful touch that is imminent. This would bring shame. His arousal, visible, insistent, conveys that the massage need not continue. How often does she end a session this way? He shies from the thought. Her firm grip, the warm gel, bring him within a few strokes to climax. He utters no sound, not wishing to embarrass either of them. She stands before him, with tissue in her hands. In this moment, his body subsiding, surrendering swift heat, he feels vulnerable. He wants a few minutes to himself, but forces his eyes open. Even now, a fresh client could be at the door downstairs. He sits up, and she brings his shirt, his trousers. Only, now that it's done, does he permit his eyes to meet hers. She complies in the little game, busying herself with small, needless tasks, directing toward him occasional demure glances. At each turn, her robe swings open to offer a momentary allure. Even when he doesn't have a happy ending, it's a matter of many minutes before he speaks. Thank you, Mariam, he says at last, wary of the false intimacy that can come with mere nakedness and the scent of semen. How are things? Now she will not turn. He cannot see what holds her attention. Perhaps she offers her back simply to safeguard his privacy. I'm exhausted, she says, a shiver in her shoulders. He doesn't know what his response should be. Instead, too sharply, he stands to pull on his trousers and blood flees his skull. Puffs of white burst and flare before his eyes. He shuts them and resolves that he must tip her more than usual as if he were not generous already. She's facing him, arms folded. I have a sister. She can't take care of herself. She's like, you know, a vegetable. So we have to do it, my ma and me. It's work. Her voice is flat with suppressed anger. Is it pity she wants? I wish sometimes she'd die. It's no life she has. How did she become that way? His curiosity surprises him. She's always been. She was born like that. I've been wishing she weren't around since I was ten, and I had to help wash her. Does your mother also find her a burden? It's her child, from her body, you know. Maybe I'd feel the same if she were my daughter, not my sister. She leans against the table. The robe, which falls as far as her knees, exposes thighs that are paler than her face. Before, he'd put Mariam's age at close to 30, but he guesses now that she's not more than 25. But the effort to take care of her, to clean her, ash, man. Have you heard of mercy killing? His socked feet rest on the floor, but he makes no move to put on his shoes. Incomprehension is apparent on Mariam's face. He doesn't know if he means the question as a joke. The conversation has abruptly turned morbid. It's for those who'd be better off dead. He tries to assume a vapid half-smile, but his cheeks are stiff. Silence cuts between them. 
scrubbing a hand through his hair. He ignores the stickiness spreading down his thigh and goes to his coat. From his wallet he removes four notes, trying to conceal that he counts them. He sets the money beneath the pillow and does not look at her as he goes out. The next night he goes to buy Thai food and takes it to Carol's house. Carol is undemanding. Her law career absorbs much of her energy and there's little obligation with respect to intimacy. He's known her since varsity, and although they discussed it idly over breakfast one damp Sunday morning, he and Carol do not wish to marry each other. They are, he suspects, two alike. Perhaps they will never marry. He watches television. Carol sits close by on the floor, biting her pen, squinting fiercely. She's writing a law brief. At half past ten, she brushes his lips with hers and goes into the bedroom. She's already asleep when he ducks beneath the cool, tight sheets on her narrow bed. Carol doesn't like to be held, but in the night she rolls against him, snaring his ankles with long feet. Her sibilant breathing does not quite reach the level of a snore. Beside her house stands a forest. The stillness is complete. Lying away, he imagines the trees looming over the little house and peering in. He dislikes the quiet and is thankful for the solitary comfort of Carol's noisy exhalations. Mariam telephones. He's sitting at his desk, the door of his office ajar, and looking at his computer screen. He doesn't immediately hear the ring, which has been turned down very low. Hello? I'm sorry to bother you. He shuts the door. How did she get his number? His next appointment with her is a few weeks off. Still, his voice doesn't waver. Mariam, he says. I couldn't. I wanted to. I even had the opportunity. My mother was out at the shops. Memla was sleeping. But I couldn't bring myself to it. He interrupts. Where do you live? In her agitation, she'll say too much. Embarrassed, she mutters an address. He knows the area only indistinctly. He gives her the name of a coffee shop. I'll see you at six. Mariam comes dressed as a woman does to meet a man whose intentions she doesn't know. Jeans, hair tied back, practical flat black shoes. Her face is free of makeup. He stands to greet her. She bends forward, offering a cheek, then thinks better of it and sits. There is, he observes, no place in their interaction for hugs and cheek kisses. She orders red wine and, perhaps to cover her awkwardness, looks around. He dislikes this coffee shop, which he's chosen for convenience. It's done up to imitate cafes and films about true love in Seattle or San Francisco. The banisters are blonde wood and behind the counter rests the gleaming steel machine that makes the coffee. Before him on the table is an untouched mug of decaffeinated coffee. Mariam waits, taking small sips of a house wine he knows tastes like ash. Leaning forward, he says, You were telling me about um, Memla? The name has a strange taste. I couldn't do it. My mother loves her too much. But I also thought she'll know. Ma, ma I mean. If I did it at I'd have to pretend when Ma came home. And I'm not one of those soapies girls. I can't just make tears come just like that. So what will you do? This is as near as he can come to asking what you want from me. 
His fingers press a spot beneath the inside lining of his coat. I don't know. She twists her mouth, which oddly makes her prettier. I was hoping for um, advice, maybe. You know these things, mercy killing, you said. Why? Raymond may not even be my real name. I could be with the police for all you know. Shrewdness colors her gaze a moment. She says nothing. How often one assumes others are fools because they are poor or uneducated. Again, he puts his hand inside his jacket. He pulls out a small plastic canister with a click-clap and sets it down beside his coffee mug. Without looking at it, he says, In this bottle, there are 40 pills, digitalis. He drops his voice to a whisper, even though the cafe will soon be shut for the night and there are no other patrons. Her eyes are intent on his. Foxglove. The name crowds his mouth, but she will not understand it. She darts a brief look at the bottle and then starts staring at him again. Her expression is faintly lascivious. He continues. I assume you prepare your sister's food? Hmm? Good. Today or tomorrow, grind up one half of a tablet into a fine powder and mix it into her noon meal. The taste is metallic, but only slightly unpleasant. Every five days, increase the dose by half a pill. If you hurry the process, she, Memla, may suffer a sudden, sharp heart attack. Maybe fatal, maybe not. She'll certainly experience pain and hallucinations, and being unable to communicate distress will suffer terribly. But in three weeks, if you follow my directions, she'll simply fall into a deep sleep and die peacefully. Mariam's foot brushes his and he pauses. An accidental contact, he assumes. Gulping thin, tepid coffee, he waits for her to ask him to repeat himself. Again, she says nothing, chewing her lip. Then, she shoves the pill canister in her pocket. She carries no handbag. Thank you, Mr. Raymond. In her inflection is an echo of doubt. She's begun to comprehend how little they know of one another. He's curious, but he doesn't ask if Mariam is her real name. Is she a student? Does she work simply to pay tuition? Instead, he too is silent. Surely she has questions to put to him about autopsies, post-mortems. But she sits back, not curious about the business of poisoning. Her eyes do not leave his face. Her wine glass is empty. He gestures to the server who comes with the bill. Thank you, Mariam says again, so tonelessly it might be gratitude for a shared drink. Outside, it is light and the sun stands high. He follows her out, but doesn't offer her a lift. Driving home, he ponders the white scar on her cheek, which doesn't quite mar her face. He cannot wait for the next month. Desire is like an itch on the sole of his foot that won't go away. On an impulse, after a weekend of which he recalls few details, he telephones to arrange an appointment with Mariam for that very afternoon, even though it's Monday. He's successful, and this emboldens him. In a lying voice, which he makes no attempt to disguise, he dials a different number and cancels his engagement at the squash court. A little after half-past four, leaving in haste, he bumps into Paulson near the elevator. 
Off for squash? Paulson is a physiotherapist with whom he must sometimes consult. The relationship is amicable, but Paulson's habit of wearing his white coat, even when outside the lab, irks him. There is something knowing in Paulson's look, or so he thinks. He nods and puts his head down to deter further talk. The traffic is slower than usual. There's been an accident at the intersection of the highway. He drives with a patience he does not feel. At ten past five, he raps at Mariam's door and waits. She bids him to enter. Here, within the room, the rituals are unchanged. She takes his jacket. He attempts to smile with sincerity, but fails. No matter anyway, for she turns her eyes from his face. Breathless, he climbs onto the bed. Lying on his stomach, hands at his sides, his arousal aches as it presses into the mattress. The secret between them invests the air with a charge. The sheet falls across his body. There is no music, and this causes him slight irritation. Then her fingers clasp his neck, and he bites back a shudder. She goes about her work with an unfamiliar delicacy, yet her hands are unconcerned with any stiffness. Instead, her caresses deepen his arousal, as he knows they're meant to, until he feels he must burst. Particular care is lavished on his feet. She chafes each toe, her oiled fingers snaking between so that they tingle when he rubs them together. Today, it's not by her hand he receives release. He scarcely dares breathe for fear he will whimper. In the moment of greatest intensity and restraint, he opens his eyes. The sensation at the base of his belly is one of physical pain. Once, he calls her name. Afterward, spent as if he swum against a strong tide, he lies with an arm over his face, wanting the weight of her body on his. He feels no shame. He looks at his watch. Nearly two hours have elapsed. Mariam sits on a chair in the corner, her robe cinched about her body. She's watching him, but he cannot guess her thoughts. He sits to dress. Mariam neither stirs nor averts her eyes. Darkness is settling, but a last glare of sunlight illuminates the mountain above him. He's already inside his car, about to turn the ignition on, when he thinks of Memla. He sits, waiting for Mariam to come out. Perhaps her day is finished, but this is foolishness. He drives off through quiet streets to his empty cooling house, too annoyed to think of eating. There's nothing on television to hold his interest, and it's years since he read a book. In his bed, the faint film of oil on his skin sticks to the sheets. He falls easily asleep. Days pass in which he makes no attempt to see Carol. In turn, there's no word from her. Long silences between them are not unusual. In the lab or seated before his computer, he experiences sharp, sudden recollections of smooth brown skin and fingernails. At night, his thoughts turn to Memla. He doesn't know what she looks like, but imagines a grotesque form listlessly sprawled in a soiled bed, breathing in harsh gasps. The Memla of his imagination has become more inert in recent days. She sleeps deeply and is not easily roused. An attentive caregiver might detect the unusual coolness of Memla's skin. Death approaches with a stealth and placidity he likens to a summer's ebb. Miriam's words reel again and again through his consciousness. 
It's no life she has. His dreams are haunted by Mariam herself. Not since he was a teenager has he touched himself so often. At his desk, he redoes the calculations on a notepad to be sure. It is certain. The dose of digitalis being mixed into the girl's food must now be very high. As if in sympathy, his own limbs grow heavy, lethargic, as the day lengthens. He carries out his duties in a fog. There are moments in which his hands shake, as if with palsy. Yet he's too adept to break any vials in the lab. For him, there can be no mistakes or accidents. What he wants, as dearly as the touch of her hand, is to hear Mariam's confidential tones over the telephone. He would give much for an opportunity to murmur in her ear the remembered obscenities that are his dreams. Still, no word comes. He scans the papers, but there are no stories of poisoning. It's the second Wednesday of November. The calm he feels in the morning has dissipated by noon. He fears the worst, that when he opens the door in that house, he will see some other woman that's not Mariam. He drives too fast, slowing only when in range of the highway speed cameras. His grip on the steering wheel is like the hold of a madman. In his eagerness, he doesn't knock and rushes, clattering into the room he thinks of as hers. He's arrived some minutes early. He shuts the door and sets down his case. She's standing over the small table by the window, arranging the flowers in the vase. She knows he's behind her, but doesn't acknowledge his presence in any way. Approaching, he experiences a flare of jealousy. Who has been here? He gathers her hair in his hand and pushes it aside to bare her neck. He stoops to kiss the thin skin taut over the bones of her spine. She bows her head, offering neither resistance nor invitation. Gently, he turns her around. Her lips meet his. Her eyes are tight shut. Your, um, sister? The question burns in his mind, as if Memla is merely ailing. But there'll be enough time for that after. She's steering him toward the bed, her kisses insistent. Her mouth tastes of nothing at all. His hands are beneath her robe as she tries to undress him. His trousers and his undershorts are gathered about his ankles. There is no friction when she straddles him. Her thighs are warm on his groin. The swelling, against which he is powerless, gathers at the base of his belly. He struggles to sit back, needing to look fully on Mariam. She's unrecognisable, her face a mask. Her eyes are slitted and she bears small jagged teeth. But, he thinks, and the lucidity of the thought is a shock in itself, I too must look like this, in the writhing possession of some demon. Something wrenches from him so sharply he is incapable of crying out. A sensitivity that cannot be borne invades his entire skin and then over his abdomen he feels spreading numbness. He starts awake with a yelp. In his dream... A beast with a pig's snout has been gnawing at his genitals. He looks about the room with embarrassment, but he is alone. Digitalist Last was read to you by Maimuna Jalo and written by Olufemiteri. Olufemiteri has published fiction, poetry, and nonfiction in Chimurenga and Ganika, among other publications. 
His short story, Stick Fighting Days, won the 2010 Kane Prize for African Writing. You can follow him on Twitter and his handle is at Olufemi Terry. With the world either social distancing, self-quarantine or in lockdown, a great initiative is taking place for lovers of African literature. The Afrolit Sun Frontier, a virtual literary festival that's brought together over 16 writers from 10 African countries, are sharing their work in either English, French and Portuguese. The festival runs until March the 30th. You can find more details on their Instagram and Facebook pages. That's the Afrolit Sun Frontier, a virtual literary festival. We are in uncharted waters globally, but I hope you're following whatever guidelines that have been put in place to protect you and your loved ones from the COVID-19 virus. Please keep safe, folks. Nipe Story is available to download wherever you get your podcast from. Please write a review and rate the podcast and please tell your people about our podcast. You can follow us here on SoundCloud. On Facebook, we are Nipe Story. And on Twitter, our handle is at Nipe underscore story. Nipe Story is a finger piano production.